0: Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools, and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash APPS. Well, hello. Happy Friday, everybody, when I'm recording this today. And today's episode is actually, it's the, the first part of a two-part episode on acute trauma management. So one of the things that I'm trying to do for some of the the clinical episodes is kind of reduce these to around an hour. Um, and so one of the ways to do that when we have a, a topic as big as, you know, for example, trauma is to kind of break it up into separate parts. So part one will kind of focus on the acute management in the trauma bay um, and down in the ED typically. And then part two will focus more on like the ICU management. So For those who practice in in the ICU, this will absolutely be a fantastic refresher. And if you primarily practice in an ICU, I think this will give you great insight into kind of pre-ICU management from when they literally are rolling into the hospital. Um, And who better to do this with? I'm joined by a friend of the pod and recurring guest Brian Gilbert. Now, you may remember Brian's name from our electric critical care medication March Madness bracket. However, today we're here to talk about trauma patients and all things trauma. So our guest, Dr. Brian Gilbert, is an emergency medicine clinical pharmacy specialist at Wesley Medical Center in Wichita, Kansas. He serves as the PGY2 critical care pharmacy residency director the Director of Education for the Kansas Council of Health System Pharmacy, and is an Adjunct Assistant Clinical Professor for the University of Kansas School of Pharmacy. Brian, good morning, my man. How are you?
1: Nick, I'm doing well, sir. Thank you for having me again. I just want to go on record, since we're doing a lot of uh, vote counting here lately, that I did win that March Madness, so...
0: Shots fired. I, I support it. I feel like everyone was a winner. So you, I agree. You won. You, you were one of the winners. Yes. <laughs> now we're recording this in the morning. So let's talk coffee here for a quick second. Are you a coffee drinker? I absolutely have a cup of coffee right in front of me. So like, what's your go-to coffee order? Maybe not making it because most, most of us are just going to do drip or something like that. But like, if you're going somewhere, what's your go-to coffee order?
1: You know, it depends on the location, right? So I've got a Starbucks order, I've got a Dunkin' order, and then I've got my favorite donut place order. So (laughs) That's
0: incredible. (laughs) Do you have a different order for each place you go?
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. You don't want to just order. I mean, everybody's got their strengths and you try to play to them, you know? So, you know, uh, not everybody's going to do everything the same way. So for sure starbucks it's going to be a skinny vanilla latte Dunkin's going to be a uh, caramel macchiato and then my Dunkin' or my my donut place is just going to be you know regular leaded, you know what i mean no <laughs> no tricks about it
0: now now hot or iced
1: you know it depends on the weather um uh, to be honest with you uh which i never really had to account for i'm a florida guy by heart and uh After moving to Kansas, I realized that hot coffee can be your friend and that ice is uh, not always recommended in uh, 22-degree weather. So it really just depends on the season, to be honest.
0: Okay, so you're like me where you're a reverse temperature drinker. So if it's hot outside, you're going to drink iced, and if it's cold outside, you're going to drink hot.
1: Absolutely,
0: absolutely. Yeah, you're right. I, I feel like each year it's taking me longer to break it and now that I'm in, you know, I'm in Indiana, so it gets pretty cold when you're, you're right. When you're holding that, that iced coffee in 10 to 20 degree weather, it, uh, it is less appealing. <laughs> yeah. We're still I mean, drinking the, it. When We're you get that drinking. warm feeling and it just slaps different, you know? Yeah. But the people who can do it when it's at like hundred degrees outside, that's what I don't understand. Like my wife drinks hot coffee year round. She swears by it. And I just, I, I don't get it. I don't understand it.
1: Yeah, no, that's, I don't need to sweat from the coffee when I'm already going to be sweating <laughs> from the 100-degree weather. So,
0: <laughs> Okay, now let's let's start from the very beginning. So the trauma one alert comes through. Now before we talk anything related to trauma, how are you alerted to this? Do you have like a, an old-school pager? Do you have a Cisco phone? How do you get alerted?
1: Yeah, I, I'm so I'm fortunate enough that my office sits directly – in the, the emergency department. So I am able to hear traffic, um, coming in, you know, if I'm lucky enough to be sitting in the office. Um, so that can alert me right away. I also have the old school, uh, pager. Um, so I'll get that alert that uh, pops up as well. Um, which is always kind of interesting because there's always sometimes a story behind it. So, um, you know, being in in the Midwest and being in Kansas, sometimes you'll get up, uh, get a pop-up about sort of farming accident and being a Florida kid, I got to go Google what some of these machineries <laughs> and everything that's going on is. Uh, so I feel like I've got a good grasp on uh, farm life around here now in terms of the, the machines and mechanisms, but uh, every now and then something will pop up and uh, s- to still surprise me.
0: Now, and for those who don't know, typically what, what happens is you'll get in alert from like the traffic, which is like EMS or, or, or you know, some sort of um, outside hospital like lifeline transport, and they're letting you know the patient's coming. So what are you doing to prepare for this patient kind of during this pre-arrival time where you, you have an idea of what's coming, but sometimes what, what's paged out and what actually comes to you can be two very separate um, people. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, and, and you know, it depends on the timing of it. You know, if you get the alert that something's coming in within one minute, um, you have to really retriage your entire um, scope of what you're doing um, within the ED. And then, you know, if you have a, a set amount of time um, that's a little bit longer, you could potentially uh, maybe get a few tasks done before. But, um, if it's something that I feel like and I, I see the message or I hear the traffic, I think it's going to be fairly involved. I just go ahead and try to get to the trauma bay as early as I can to speak with our uh, trauma nurses and trauma personnel uh, mid-levels just to see, you know, what's going on, what story they've gotten. Um, as a lot of times the, the traffic from EMS, um, potentially there's there's things that they're aware of that we aren't. Um, especially if it's a transfer from an outside facility, uh, or you know somebody's being life lighted to you, you may get a little bit more information than just what's coming across through your pager and then coming across through traffic. So, I try to get there as early if I think it's going to be very involved. Um, if it's not something that I think is going to be super involved, uh, I do what's known as drive bys, especially if I'm busy. Hey. Let me know if you guys need anything. I'll k- take a peek about. I'll take a peek at this, and then I'll swing by a little bit later after I finish something that is really acutely uh, needing my attention as well.
0: Take a look to see if they pass the eye test. Basically, like, are they on their cell phone or are they? Are it's they the talking? iPhone test, yeah. as I call it. Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so it obviously depends on the amount of time and things you have, and I love that you highlighted you know, the multidisciplinary involvement right up front, because it is critical to success on the trauma team multidisciplinary because it's an all hands on deck scenario. So I love that you kind of highlighted that. Um, But as you're preparing, um, obviously, most of us listening are pharmacists. So do you have a specific like group of medications or like a bag or a box of medications that you grab every time? Or does it vary based on the patient and maybe the mechanism of the injury?
1: Yeah, it's going to definitely um, depend on the mechanism. Like you said, what, what comes across, what's coming through. Do I have a blunt force injury? Do I have a penetrating injury? Um, do I have reports that they're already hypotensive and potentially have some sort of um, higher uh, support needs? Are they ventilated? Um, are, is there going to be a uh, need for uh, potentially uh, CPR resuscitation? Is there going to be need for... Um, you know hemorrhagic shock resuscitation the other thing is is what time of day is it do i have help do you know if it it's a little bit different if you're there in the middle of the day and you can have support and other pharmacists to help you or is it two two o'clock in the morning and you've now got to do all of this by yourself so um i am a little bit more of a preparer I, i believe that preparation prevents panic and and so um If I'm by myself, I will gather more things than I need because I can always put it back later. But if I have more support around, um, I usually will uh, let things play out just a little bit uh, ahead of time. Now, hopefully I've had enough time that I've been able to um, do what's called Sherlock Holmes Methods of Trauma Scenarios that I do and try to teach my residents. So anybody that has seen those movies uh, with Robert Downey Jr., a lot of times he likes to verbalize what's going to happen. And then they show a a sequence where exactly what he has played out happens. And so I try to do that with trauma scenarios so that I am not necessarily shocked by what has happened and can just react because I've already played out the scenario of what potentially may happen with that patient in my head. Um, That's something that really only happens with multiple repetitions, but also quizzing yourself and creating scenarios um, you know, over time. And so it's one of those things that if you don't practice it, you're not going to be able to just walk into the trauma bay and be able to just, um, some people sort of glide through the trauma bay. They're able to maneuver. Um, and and I almost say like dance around just because there is a, a slight, uh, chaos to, to the trauma bay that, um, others are able to navigate others are not. And, a lot of that just has to deal with the preparation that you um, have had. Um, But yeah, in terms of just a preset list of medications, again, I'm going to probably um, listen out for those things uh, and then start grabbing more than I may potentially need and and go from there.
0: Yeah, It's always easier to put them back after the fact than to try and keep making trips to... You know what? Whether whether they keep it in an automated dispensing cabinet, where the pharmacists sit, what have you. But the least the least running you can do is always preferred in these scenarios.
1: Yeah, and it just it feels you know thirty seconds in the trauma bay can feel like forever. You know you're mm. you're <laughs> getting barked at by uh, by a surgeon or somebody's screaming for some sort of medication, and so if you can get it to them within uh, a. a Quicker time frame because you're already prepared and you have it uh, pulled pulled out and have all of your uh, necessary tools to prepare that. It just makes it that much uh, easier, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, that's what they want. That's exactly what you described. Is they ask for it and you've worked with these people long enough that you already have a you have it uh, geared up and ready to go.
1: And, and, and it goes with what you're saying too, in terms of the rapport uh, if you have worked with some uh, a surgeon before and you know their preferences on things, you can almost get to the point where um, <laughs> sometimes there may be a little slight um, confirmation bias that you've worked with them so long, you just assume they're going to want something. And I've been I've been uh, caught on that a couple times where I thought they're going to go ahead and want this, and I've drawn it up, and um, you know you have to end up wasting it. So there's a little uh, uh, a moment of having to. Uh, tuck your tail between your legs because you're <laughs> a little embarrassed, but, yep. um, you know, for the most part, that's, that's also a, a good uh, feeling when, um, the surgeons or the the trauma personnel ask for something and you say, you know, we've already, we've already gotten that taken care of. Don't worry about it. You focus on the patient. So yeah, it's a good feeling when you do get those, which happen, you know, when you work in the trauma bay a lot, and then when you've worked with a set personnel, it does happen quite a bit where you get used to, sort of their uh, preferences for the situation.
0: So the level one trauma patient arrives, um, hopefully, you know, not getting bagged or or receiving CPR or anything like that. This can certainly be a chaotic scene if you haven't been at one of these alerts before. So ultimately with all these people, with how sick these patients can be, And I think you were kind of building on what you were just talking about here. What would you say is ultimately the role of the pharmacist on the trauma team?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a culmination of I've already prepared for uh, what I think is is going to happen with this patient based off of all of the information that I have. And now that they've arrived, I get to essentially uh, find out if the preparation that I've had will pay off. And so my ultimate goal is that my trauma personnel and my surgeons don't have to think about anything medication related because I've already done that aspect for them. Uh, I've already pulled reversal agents. If I think that we'll need them, um, hyperosmolar therapy, antibiotics, you know, anything you name it. Uh, so I want the, the surgeons and I want my uh, providers to be able to focus in on that exam. Uh, I want them to be able to diagnose and, uh, look for any of those uh, acute surgical needs. Um, and so, you know, if, you, if they're able to focus in on that and not have to worry about the medication aspect of it, it's just one more thing to take off of their plate. And it maximizes uh,
0: my role in the trauma bay
1: as the medication expert.
0: And I think something that is a teaching point frequently for for students and residents is listening to the primary survey and and you talked about how you know you want to be able to take care of things so that the physicians surgeons okay. residents and things can listen to that why is this so important for us to hear yeah
1: i think it's it's really important to hear because you're able to really tune in to the acuity and the um, pharmaceutical needs that may occur within, you know, immediately for this patient. And so if you're tuned into that, you can gather that information and be able to begin to equate uh, again uh, where this patient may uh, end up. If you see how sick they are now, you can sort of project um, those needs uh, and be prepared for them. So, again, preparation prevents panic. And if you, before they even reach the trauma bay, you're prepared by the time they reach to the trauma bay and you're listening in on that primary survey, you could be prepared as you're going to have to ultimately transport this patient either to surgery, uh, uh, to imaging, uh, up to the unit. So you can have all of these things prepared and ready to go, um, which it just adds that much uh adds a much uh, appreciated level of comfort for, for your uh, providers as they're doing that survey. Um, and I think it's important again, because you can begin to anticipate those needs. Um, and again, you can react as opposed to having to just think on the spot.
0: Well, I think one other big point to highlight is that, Everyone's so busy in these things. Nothing is in the computer. So if you miss some of these things, you're constantly asking questions and playing catch up the whole time because it's a very different environment than, you know, for your classic ICU patient. You can go to the computer and everything's there. That is the furthest from from the truth from when they hit the trauma bay because everyone's taking care of the patient and maybe doing less in terms of actual writing things down in the chart. Right? They're writing things down on paper or things like that. Now. Absolutely. Now, in this survey, what are you listening for? I, I mean, and obviously you try to listen to everything, right? And and you want to try to get the whole picture. But are there are there specific things that you hone in on? Are there specific phrases or keywords that like, uh-oh, kind of your ears start to perk up when you see or hear that? Like, what are some of those things?
1: Right. And so, you know, again, taking a step back up, the, the primary survey, again, is going to be um, – and you'll hear it uh, dictated as the ABCDE. So first and foremost, uh, the sort of cornerstone of emergency medicine, ABCs, right? So airway, breathing, and circulation. Uh, those are always going to be the cornerstones and something that as a student or resident, if you're getting lost in the trauma bay, um, or within emergency medicine, those are always things that you can fall back on. Um, that's going to be your backbone. Uh, Next, in terms of disability, really, for most trauma patients, the way that we'll communicate what uh, disability is utilizing the GCS. Uh, it's the easiest and probably the, the most reliable way to communicate that from provider to provider. Um, you know, GCS being um, with, with a scale of 3 to 15, um, 3 being uh, you know, completely come with those fifteen being absolutely fine. Um, so for those within, without uh, being in the emergency medicine realm, um, GCS of eight is sort of our uh, not arbitrary cutoff, but it's our uh, key that we're listening out for. Um, a GCS of eight is um, very close to poor neurological function to the point that they may have res- respiratory compromise, and so. Uh, a lot of times within emergency medicine, you'll hear the, and trauma, you'll hear the, the old adage of a GCS less than eight, you intubate. So that's I was that's hoping one thing you were going to say cool. it. I was hoping you were going <laughs> to say that. They'd,
0: you were, you were hinting around it there for a second. Good. I'm glad you let the listeners in.
1: I mean, at some point you just got to stop beating around the bush. You got to tell me, Nick, just get to the point there, BG. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, but yeah, you know, it's, it, um, that is a key uh, sort of factor I'm listening in for if it's a traumatic brain injury um, and they're at GCS of that that sort of moderate TBI range of GCS of 9 to 12. That's also something that I'm listening out for, um, mostly due to the fact that when you look at the trauma literature, you look at the TBI literature, that. That moderate TBI range, I think, is where, for the most part, we're having the biggest impact or can potentially have the biggest impact in our patients. Um, You know, GCS of a 3, a severe TBI, probably not much we're going to be able to do anyway from a pharmaceutical standpoint. uh, GCS of 15, um, probably very little benefit that we can offer pharmaceutically as well just due to the fact that they're not that uh, ill. But. Yeah, so I'm listening out for that, that, uh, GCS of eight, less, uh, less than eight, we're going to intubate. So then I start thinking about RSI meds. I even start to think about RSI meds if I have a G- GCS of that nine to, to 12 range, and you know, they're a TBI. Um, just due to the fact that if there is any sort of neurological decline, we may end up being, um, may needing to intubate as well. Um, and then lastly, exposure. So, um, these pa- patients come in, they're finally, uh, fully undressed. Um, which side tangent? If you can get their clothes off without cutting them, I know that's always like a big thing. But those are small little aspects that, um, even as a pharmacist, you can try to advocate for the patient. So, uh, if we can prevent having to cut those off with the trauma shears, I know they're nice and I know they're they're uh, expensive. But if we can uh, advocate to get those off without cutting them, I know the patients appreciate it as well. But The exposure, I always think, is sort of the mystery round because you never really know what you're going to find or or what other additional injuries there are until you get that full primary survey done. And so you may have that initial sort of, uh, oh, duh, that's what's causing illness, but there's always those surprises that sneak up on you. And uh, if you're not doing a very thorough primary survey, you can always um, miss something.
0: And I think some of the things you highlighted is, you know, pharmacists do, intervening with non-medications, right? So doing things to help because ultimately like, you know, um, it's doing everything you can for the patient. Sometimes that's getting medications ready. Sometimes that's getting a warm blanket. Sometimes that's advocating for their clothes, what have you. So, so sometimes it, being the best part of the team does, is, is non-medication related and just really helping everyone else do their thing.
1: Absolutely. The little things that add up. And if, it also shows your team that you're willing to do those things, which uh, ultimately is what we're there for, is for that patient. So, uh, yeah, absolutely.
0: So let's kind of break up a little bit in terms of like going into some of the acute, acute management. Um, and we'll kind of start with kind of thinking of our blood products and, and coagulopathy and things in trauma. Now, some of the most kind of critically ill trauma patients receive a massive transfusion protocol. So what does this mean? And then when is this protocol activated?
1: Right. Yeah. So in terms of, for those that don't deal with this that often, you can just essentially assume that a massive transfusion protocol is that the patient is hemorrhaging. Uh, so rapidly to the point that uh, they're going to need uh, copious amounts of resuscitation with uh, blood products. Um, whether or not they're losing whole blood or not is uh, something that uh, we'll talk about in a little bit. But, um, you know, in terms of the overall appearance of these patients, they're coming in um, they're likely hypotensive or they have any sort of imaging that suggests that they may have ongoing active bleeding. But the way I was taught and the way I teach my residents is that you have that trauma patient roll through the door. They're hypotensive um, with potential mechanisms for hemorrhage that that patient is bleeding until proven otherwise. And so one of the worst things that you can do is get, get behind early in that resuscitation. So, You want to be aggressive and you want to be able to um, resuscitate to their needs because, uh, in this day and age, I think everybody is aware that resuscitating a a massively bleeding uh, trauma patient with crystalloid is just highly inappropriate. You can lead to more coagulopathies um, and actually worsen the issue. Uh, So, these patients need blood and you need to get it to them early. Now, in terms of when when to call an MBT, that's up for debate. If you look at um, different uh, guidelines, they'll give you different criteria, but really it's going to get uh, to be institution specific, and even within the institution, it'll likely be uh, trauma surgeon specific as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, ideally, what will happen is these MBTs are called, and you'll begin the resuscitation with uh, packed blood cells, uh, fresh frozen plasma. Uh, in platelets, and you'll be administering that in a one-to-one-to-one fashion. So one unit of PRDC, one unit of FFP, and then one platelet pack. Uh, And then you may potentially be giving uh, cryoprecipitate, which is essentially just cool fiber engines. So um, you'll begin the resuscitation with that, and then some institutions will begin to utilize Your conventional coagulation parameters, so PT, INR, APTT, hemoglobin, platelets, uh, fibrinogen content. Uh, There's been sort of a surge towards uh, patients, or patients, but institutions also utilizing uh, viscoelastic testing with things such as TEG and Rotem as well to sort of guide resuscitation.
0: Now, that's kind of a perfect lead in here um, because viscoelastography, including TAG or Rotem, are being utilized more and more to help paint a better picture of someone's coagulopathy because um, I think all of us know inherently using our standard lab values that have um, inherent problems with them um, can lead to um, potentially not being able to recognize someone specific, either, um, you know, coagulopathy or kind of, um, pro thrombotic state. So how does viscoelastography work and how does it help us specifically in our trauma patients?
1: Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, viscoelastography really is just a, it paints a picture, as you were saying, uh, of a patient's clotting performance. If you want to, uh break it down that way. So from clot initiation to clot breakdown, you're able to um, get all of this information utilizing those, um, those parameters um, all in a single, single test. Now we can get some of the same information um, potentially with some of our conventional uh, coagulation assays. The problem is, is that it just gives you a quantitative value and then it's a bit of a static uh, parameter that doesn't really tell you if there's uh, any sort of ongoing uh, coagulopathy um, sort of the benefits of PEG versus your conventional coagulopathies and i 'll try not to just stand on my soapbox uh, but uh, you know there's there's a lot of different modalities and operational variances um, between the two um, and even within PEG itself, um, but it can help with overall Uh, more guided resuscitation, more patient-specific resuscitation, and they can prevent erroneous blood product administration, uh, factor product administration in terms of uh, the medications and pharmaceuticals that we can utilize, uh, reversal agents potentially as well. So traditionally, like you were saying, we're utilizing it more as a clinical tool, but PEG and Roten themselves were utilized more um, as research tools. But um, you're starting to see that transition now. Um, you know, tag's been around since the '40s, um, but we're just now starting to realize that it does have clinical utility. Now, I should probably caveat that this is all up for debate. You may have—I'm a, a bit of a tag enthusiast, um, and there may be some folks out there that would disagree with this. So that's my caveat on this. I don't actually have—he never actually said it—but I don't have actually have any uh, relevant financial. Uh, (laughs) Disclosures with this, Um, I'm just a a guy that likes coagulopathy and uh, and TEG, but um, you know TEG itself is now listed within uh, the Eastern guidelines. Uh, You've already discussed it on your previous pod in terms of uh, the liver guidelines, Um, so it's in there. Uh, We're starting to utilize it more. Um, I use it in my own practice um, just due to the fact that I can assess for, um, reversal needs, uh, as opposed with, with oral anticoagulation. Um, and then I can also really assess, it's one of the few modalities that actually assesses ongoing, uh, fibrinolysis. So, um, uh, it's a great tool to potentially, uh, predict, predict, patients that may, uh, benefit, benefit from antifibrinolytics such as TXA and aminocloparoc acid.
0: Well, and for those who may still want to learn more or you've kind of piqued their interest, I, I can't recommend highly enough. Um, Brian mm-hmm. has a ASHP e-learning um, kind of a webinar that's called um, Implementing Thromboelastography into Clinical Pharmacy Practice. So um, the activity, he it's uh, Brian and then Denise Pratt, who's an emergency medicine specialist out of uh, Lansing, Michigan. So um, definitely um, that's a great, a great resource. Um, and then Brian also wrote a really great. Um, well, helped co-author a very great review article on the use of tag in various clinical scenarios. So, um, lot Brian has helped contribute to a lot of literature and further education out there for anyone wanting more. I mean, because I think it's great. I think you made the analogy. It would be like reversing a patient on Coumadin without their INR. It's like giving something <laughs> without without uh, you know doing something to do a trauma patient without a tag. And I think that's the most that's the analogy that pharmacists can um, really relate to the most, because I'm sure everyone heard that was like, Ooh, I don't like that.
1: (laughs) I, uh, you know, the thing you have to realize is surgeons like numbers. And so, you know, tech gives you not only numbers in terms of quantitative value, but you get that qualitative value as well. So it's it's definitely uh, it's definitely something that if used, correctly i think can make clinical impacts yeah so <laughs> that line about uh reversing uh uh reversing with txa would be analogous to reversing warfarin without an inr <laughs> it was a uh, i gotta thank megan retch for that because uh the original quote was uh a lot meaner than that <laughs> she 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 <laughs> We were writing an editorial on the Altit trial, and so, yeah, she helped me out and softened that a little bit. She's been a great mentor for that, but, you know, so shout out Megan on that.
0: (laughs) That sounds about right. (laughs) Um, So it sounds like if we're we're talking about tags here, that it sounds like two of the most important values um, that you monitor are the R-time that can kind of help you decide if you're going to give PCC um, or not, and then the LY thirty, which really helps you decide: are you are you going to give you know TXA or aminocaproic acid? So, for institutions that are able to run viscoelastography, right, we're able to potentially give TXA based on those results. But I think kind of like what you hinted at is that. This has just very recently in the past few years come from more of a research side of things to like a more of something used truly in clinical practice. So there's a lot of hospitals that may not have it. So for institutions that don't have this kind of personalized look at, at someone's um, kind of coagulation, I think the ultimate question in trauma is, should we give TXA in these patients or should we not?
1: You know, as I was listening to your question, I realized, like halfway through that, you know, I've tied my, I've, I've hitched my wagon to tech pretty good, so hopefully it pans out, and actually, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully I'm not the crazy tech guy. You know, ten years from now, when it's like completely erroneous or something, <laughs> but uh, I don't yeah, think no, that's I've, gonna I, happen. <laughs> I don't <laughs> I think
0: you're
1: good, dude. I hope so. I hope I'm not like, uh, you know, remembered as that the quack, um, but. uh, the lavender dry i guess but then, <laughs> the um you know that's a good question if you don't have this this uh data or technology or if it's not coming back in a timely fashion or if you have like you know physician leadership or or whoever that don't believe in this i really think that you have to go back into understanding your pathophysiology and the mechanism of injury um, that's where it really does help me in those clinical scenarios because a lot of times I will treat before I have my tech data back just because empirically I'm not sure I can wait, um, you know, the 15, 20, 30, 45 minutes it may take to get some of that data back. So if I have someone who's hypotensive, they have a low responsiveness and we're about to start an NBT, I don't think it's unreasonable just to consider TXA in that situation, giving the bolus, um, you know, and potentially waiting on that information that before we, Um, start maybe the continuous infusion. There's also been some uh, literature in recent years outside of trauma, specifically with the women's trial that maybe one gram uh, is is enough. There's been other data that's looked at two gram boluses. So I think that there's still, as much as we've been harping on TXA over the past like three years, there's still some uh, areas and opportunities, uh, mostly within like some of these subgroup analyses uh, where we may start to see benefits it's just, it's going to be like everything else that we're doing in medicine. It's going to have to start being more patient specific uh, and, and guided. But, um, you know, again, if you don't have that information, um, you have to remember the mechanism of injuries, right? So penetrating injuries have more endogenous TPA release as, a, as well as having uh, more inhibition of plasminogen activator inhibitors. So in theory, those patients should benefit from something like TXA more, then let's say like blood injuries, which typically have um, more dysfunction noted within clotting factors and in platelets uh, and platelet aggregation. And so, you know, I I really will fall back onto those things and and advise uh, my residents or anybody out there that doesn't have this data yet to really think about those uh, clinical scenarios and what may be potentially be going on with a patient before, um, you know, administering those things. But Within doubt, you have to really go with your gut and understand um, your risk-benefit ratios. Um, Your number needed to harm with uh, a one-gram bolus of TXA. You know, erroneous administration is not ideal, but if you have a clinical inclination that this patient may deteriorate, and especially through uh, hemorrhaging, I don't think it's unreasonable to give those things. And the same thing with PCC as well, Um, uh, administering, in those clinical scenarios where a patient may be actively bleeding is um, probably more ideal than, than not giving in that situation.
0: Now I've also seen, where, cause when we're talking about TXA in trauma, kind of the, the classically studied regimen is you give a gram bolus, um, over, I think it's 10, maybe 15 minutes. And then you do a gram as like more of an infusion over eight hours. So kind of two grams total. So do you ever maybe just give the one gram bolus or is it, you know, once you've kind of committed, you kind of have committed.
1: So I think that will be, again, that's probably something that you need to, make sure that like institution wise um since a lot of these trauma centers are graded by um your uh different governing bodies that if you've committed to that if you've gone into an mbt that you have to go ahead and continue that most most of the fact of like or due to the fact that you're going to be breaking your own hospital by protocol or violation and so you don't want to do that and get your hospital in trouble with that but in terms of uh, giving a bolus and then the different dosing regimens um, at our institution, or at least within our surrounding areas in Wichita, we get a lot of like um, outside rural uh, Kansas injuries that, you know, they they may not make it to the trauma center for a really long time. And so they will uh, administer EMS will administer the one gram bolus out in the field. So it's not uncommon for them to get to me, for me to wait to do the continuous infusion uh, after I get my tech data back. Um, So there's a lot of times, again, as you were alluding to that there's um, variances in the, in the dosing regimens out there. And so you have to consider again, what's going on clinically with your patient um, and then your hospitals, institutions as well. And then any sort of data that would suggest that you should or shouldn't continue those regimens. Um, So my, my, current practices is if we if we've pulled the trigger on an MBT, then we'll go ahead and do the continuous infusion. But uh, if we haven't, if they've started it out in the field and the patient comes in relatively stable, I'll wait to get some of that information back because <clears throat> trauma patients are notorious for switching phenotypic uh fibrinolysis profiles. So early on after injury, they may be in a hyperfibrinolytic state, but then by the time it reach you 30, 45 minutes later, they be they may now be in what's known as fibrolytic shutdown. So that's either because they haven't activated and done TPA or they're just actually not uh, breaking down clot at all. So it, it, there's, there's different types of uh, phenotypes within that itself, which is some good, uh, good data and good literature to read. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a one size fit all model, which is probably the, the thing to take away from Really, anything when it comes to trauma resuscitation is that universal administration of anything is probably not the right answer
0: <laughs> There's not a magic pill for anything is what I'm learning, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> With Kiszican's free shoes, motion sounds something like this um, prothrombin complex concentrates or PCC either because they were receiving anticoagulants, you know, prior to the injury or they have, you know, trauma induced coagulopathy. Um, do you utilize a weight based, you know, classic PCC dosing regimen, or do you do more of like a fixed dose and then follow up either a tag or some sort of coagulation lab parameter to determine redosing or not?
1: Yeah, so for, you know, a patient that comes in that is a trauma that's on, like, let's say, warfarin, we'll follow the traditional, um, following INRs. Uh, Traditionally, we don't really use use tag in those clinical scenarios. And we do utilize um, fixed or low-dose PCC in those situations. So for any extracranial injuries, we'll go ahead and do 1,000 units unless they have a, a coagulopathy that's severe based upon INR um INR greater than 10 we'll go ahead and give an additional 500 units or if the patient is, is uh, larger they have a uh, bigger body weight like 100 kilos we'll go ahead and do an additional 500 as well but um, for intracranials we'll do 1500 with the same standard of INR greater than 10 give an additional 500 body habit is, um greater than 100 kilos give an additional 500 if they're a, a DOAC Uh, or more specifically a factor 10A inhibitor, Um, one of the things we like to do first is since one, they have, um, you know, they're, they're cleared a lot quicker than, you know, let's say warfarin. um, And I have the time and ability, I will get a tag, and I'll also potentially get a uh, low molecular weight 10A assay uh, to measure if there's any ongoing coagulopathy. Because a lot of times patients will come in if they're if we're unaware um, you know, they're not sure of the last time they took the dose. You don't want to just erroneously be giving uh, factor products. For one thing, it does—it's a procoagulant, so you don't want, don't want to put the patient at risk for inappropriate clock formation. But additionally, there's there's cost considerations, especially with PCCs being uh, relatively expensive. Um, for our ten A inhibitor reversal, we'll go ahead and do um, uh, twenty five units per kilo. Um, and then if it's just straight trauma induced coagulopathy, there's no oral any coagulants that are on board. Um, we'll do 25 units per kilo as well. Um, there's some data out there that you really don't see much benefit in terms of coagulopathy reduction, uh, beyond 1500 to 2000 units at a time. Um, and so the other key point for that as a pharmacist to know is that when you're administering these PCCs, especially for somebody with trauma-induced coagulopathy, that's hypotensive is this is not your end-all be-all. This should be an adjunct to uh, administration with fresh frozen plasma. So something to uh, increase that volume expansion.
0: And this is all extremely limited data. And so this all may be very institution or you know, health system driven. Um, because it, it is um, mixed data at best and, and retrospective, a lot of it in nature. So um, just something to keep in mind as you're listening that your specific protocol might be a little bit different just based on what your trauma team kind of prefers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's emerging data like all over, whether it be um, with zoax with, with uh, warfarin. Um, and, and, and again, like you like said, you don't want to be out of violation with your institution-specific, but um, there's there's definitely data that uh, less is more in some of these situations, um, but you'll want to verify that and have that mm. uh, approved by everybody involved.
0: Now, we absolutely can't talk about transfusions or blood or blood product administration without discussing calcium, kind of like the sixth man, the utility player on the trauma team here. So why is hypocalcemia so common in trauma and especially those patients who are maybe receiving that massive transfusion protocol or receiving a large amount of blood products?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, you know, these blood products, they're just like, they're sitting there and uh, hanging out in the blood bank and, uh, you know, if you let blood hang out together, they it tends to pool and it uh, wants to clot. And so uh, to prevent that, we add um, sort of uh, anticoagulation within the, the actual blood themselves, so citrate. Um, and so when we're uh, administering large amounts of products, what happens is then we begin to have large citrate build up within um, our uh, serum. And so... Uh, Citrate likes to chelate calcium, and so in that situation, you can begin to see um, a coagulopathy induced by hypocalcemia. So, remembering, um, calcium is a plays an important role in the uh, clotting cascade, and so uh, without administering calcium in these situations, you're uh, just shooting yourself in the foot because you're not going to be able to overcome um, the coagulopathy. And in in fact, if you continue to treat through it, you're just going to make it worse.
0: Yeah. It's kind of the same thought for when you're using, you know, for example, citrate for CRT kind of regional anticoagulation there. Um, now do you prefer what, which calcium salt do you prefer gluconate or chloride when you're, um, treating hypocalcemia in the trauma bay?
1: So I don't have, I try not to, to have preferences over things. I really just try to think about clinical scenarios, but, um, you know, if you have a patient that comes in and you only have a small peripheral access and, um, you know, you're not going to have, and assuming that, you know, one, one line is going to be tied up with blood and then the other is just a small peripheral access. I don't want to blow that line because I may need it for other things. And so I'd be more likely to probably reach for gluconate in that situation. However, if I have a large four, uh, IV, the patient's crashing, um, maybe even beginning, uh, more aggressive resuscitation I'll probably reach for chloride now obviously with the gluconate you're probably you're going to go ahead and need to give uh more of that in that situation but uh if I'm reaching for gluconate I usually have more time anyway so I'll 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 think about that but yeah I don't want to be the guy that blows the line that the nurse just spent you know five minutes trying to get because they're uh, have poor
0: veins that's not how you make friends down in the ER, blowing, blowing lines. Absolutely. absolutely not with right. a commoner. Absolutely not. <laughs> and that's an important point is, yes, gluconate is, you know, contains one third the amount of elemental calcium. So you know how you get it to the same amount? You just give more, right? So if you, <laughs> if you have it where it's, you know, we have, for example, in our picks down in our ED, we have three grams of calcium gluconate in pre-made bags. Hmm. It's convenient. It equals one gram of calcium chloride. So just knowing those things can can make sure that you're giving the same amount of calcium, but just you know preserving um, lines and making administration of other things easier. Now, this is a question that I have to ask. I feel like I, I'll always run this question past people. Do we have an evidence-based calcium administration protocol? Um, and what I mean is, so generally in my mind, I will use, I'll try to get one gram of calcium chloride or, or three grams of gluconate for about every four units of packed red blood cells, like one to four. But I feel like that's very arbitrary and anecdotal, um, in terms of, um, you know, a practiced, a practice regimen. So it, is there any evidence-based regimen here?
1: No, we make it all up <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I mean, if someone says they have like I'm sure that there is uh, someone with like tabletop research that could tell you why you should give it after X, y, z amount, but mm-hmm. no, this is going to be institution specific as well. It's all arbitrary. Um, I'm actually like another again i'm I'm not somebody that will uh, tie myself to when to give it. Now we do have it in our protocol, and this is the one time I like will fudge like in terms of uh, the violation rule. Yeah, I may give it early. Uh, earlier in certain situations, but I believe our institution, we are one to four as well. But if I have a patient that's hypotensive um, or bradycardic in a, in a situation and we're still giving blood, remembering that calcium can act as a, as a good uh, peripheral vasoconstrictor and then can help with uh, and potentially uh, increases in nitro without knowing the, the trauma patient's medical history. Um, you know, I'm always a fan of giving calcium early in those situations to see if you can prove hemodynamics. And so, that's probably the only time I usually will steer away, uh, from, uh, our, our protocol and give early in those situations. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's not one that we have like solidified or, or, um, have great evidence for Jimmy crew has like a lot of uh, strong stance on this that he gets to Twitter a lot of times about as well. Um, which I appreciate, but, uh, he may have a different argument with, and I think he was at a one to three, um, but yeah, I'm with you, man. One to four or earlier doesn't matter.
0: I mean, it's one of those, like I tell everyone, you got to pick your battles. If someone wants to give it one to three or even one to five, like, all right. I mean, okay. It, we don't really know. So we'll just monitor and we can adjust from there. So yeah, I don't, that is not something, that is not the hill that I'm going to die on when, when I'm yeah i Yeah. <laughs>
1: there's certainly a bigger, larger in my opinion. Sorry to all the calcium enthusiasts out there. (laughs) Um,
0: now you mentioned kind of, um, you know, the thinking of, their GCS and whether we're going to have to intubate them or not. And that kind of leads us down like the RSI PAD talk just for a second. Now, we're not necessarily going to do a deep dive into RSI. That's definitely a a longer discussion for another day, but when you're choosing induction or paralytic agents in the trauma population, what are considerations you think of where things that you're running through to help you decide which drug to use, or maybe even which drug to avoid?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, it depends on the timing. Like if they're coming in right away, we're intubating. Then a lot of times what I try to do is facilitate whatever the anesthesiologist that's going to intubate, what they're comfortable with within reason. Right. So, you know, if the patient's got a blood pressure of 60 over 40 and they want 200 or propofol. I'm like, all right, we're gonna have a discussion real quick, but otherwise um, I try to uh, not go too crazy in terms of, uh agent selection only due to the fact that you know hypoxia uh is one of our secondary injuries especially in tbi that we're trying to avoid and so if it if we're um having an argument over a certain drug regimen i think that's probably more harmful than uh a potential ade from a drug but um some of my hills that i will die on with that is the patient's actually seizing um, I try to avoid automate in those situations and we'll either do ketamine, propofol, or even potentially a touch of madazolam in those situations. Um, in terms of paralytic choice, um, I, I'm a, I'm not a sucks enthusiast, but I would say that I'm a sucks apologist. Uh, I know that there's some bad data with it, certainly uh lower level of evidence with trauma, but, uh, I live in Kansas where we have a lot of difficult airways, and I'll just leave it at that. And so I would like to have something that is uh, shorter acting if I can. Um, I think that some of the debate on the, the paralytics is a little silly to just due to the fact that I want to get them. Um, I want to get a shorter agent as well, just due to the fact that like you were saying earlier, it's so chaotic that, um, you know, potentially it's missed that a patient is paralyzed without sedation. And so, um, I try to, to uh go with sucks anytime I can
0: yeah that is you summed up my thoughts on paralytics beautifully that's a I, <laughs> I agree on both fronts um the, the the people aggressively choosing one over the other unless there's contraindications one way or another um yeah Ooh. so <laughs> when we're thinking of like analgesics and sedatives, we'll kind of do a two-part question a, do you prefer trying to give them IV push or as an infusion? And then B, in these trauma population, do you have a few favorite um, sedatives or analgesics that are kind of your go-tos as everything is happening um, after they've been kind of intubated?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, so it depends. Like if they're an out, you know, they come in and they're somebody that is going to, they're from an outside facility where we haven't been able to get our own neuro exam and they're already intubated. Um, I will be, I'm the guy that likes to, to shut things off and then let the, the patient present themselves. Cause I can always bolus and restart later. Um, and in those clinical scenarios as well, if, um, you know, if we have more additional scans to do, yeah, we can continue whatever they got going on. But, um, if we're, we have all of our scans and we have everything that we need to see. Um, I am a, I'm definitely a, uh, push dose enthusiast. Um, just due to the fact that um, we can get the exam that we need. And as soon as they get that, then then I can start advocating for something more continuous. Um, and in terms of my favorite combos, I'm a I'm, I'm a high uh, proponent of ketamine. I love it for, for just about anything trauma. Um, I guess we should have the ketamine side note that ketamine doesn't increase ICPs. Case reports don't indicate practice level changes. So, Ketamine is good for that in that situation i will I will die on that hill um, and then um, fentanyl boluses uh, as well propofol. but as long as you're having some sort of uh, analgesic on board uh, as well uh, try to do analogous sedation as much as you can in these situations just because they are a trauma patient, they will have uh, some sort of most likely some sort of endothelial injury that's causing them uh somatic pain so
0: You passed your emergency medicine test, Brian, because you were, you were supposed to say that ketamine was your favorite. I didn't even have to prompt you to say that. So good work. (laughs) You passed all, all of the EM people are congratulating you right now. (laughs) We'll see you at the meeting next week where, (laughs) (laughs) so, um, Another thing that when when I'm thinking of listening to the primary survey, another thing that I'm thinking of and listening for is open fractures. Um, now, what is the importance of administering timely antibiotics for patients with open fractures?
1: It's it's literally like anything else. You know, you have an infectious source, and you don't know if the patient, ha- uh, you know, that especially if they're presenting after a trauma, if they're presenting uh, with. Uh, hemorrhagic shock versus distributive shock because now they're septic. And so, uh, getting early on, uh, getting early administration of antibiotics, um, can, can prevent, um, you know, serious complications later, especially wound and, and osteos. And so, um, that's usually something that, again, that was a good point in terms of the primary survey, listening out for, um, and, and understanding when, when antibiotics are going to be needed. I'd also throw in, just based off of, and, and don't at me people, I know that the data on this is bad, but it, it's part of our uh, ACS sort of guidelines, but administration of antibiotics before chest tube insertions for patients that have potentially a hemothorax, um, And so those are also something to consider uh, when you're listening in on that primary survey.
0: Now, you hinted at this a little bit earlier, and then, and then like you said, the only thing I want to reiterate there is you try to get those within one hour of, of arrival. Um, generally, you want to try to get it, like, within one hour of the injury, but like you said, sometimes they're coming from, you know, really rural part of the state, and their drive has been more than an hour. So sometimes you're you're not able to get that, but sooner rather than later. And then, you know, the other thing to emphasize is, like, I'll always try to get it before they leave for scan because I can't tell you how many times it's like, oh, they're definitely coming back. They're definitely going to come back. And then they go they go straight from scan to the OR, from scan to the ICU. So it's just one of those things <laughs> to try to get it earlier so it kind of doesn't fall through the cracks there.
1: Absolutely. You don't want to be the guy that makes them fall out of uh, the A- 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 ATS, uh guidelines on that. So you want to be the solution, not the problem. <laughs>
0: Now, a massive kind of topic when we're thinking of trauma and TBIs is kind of the management of elevated ICP. Um, for anyone who hasn't listened, we kind of went through some of the guidelines with Aaron Cook out of from the University of Kentucky, so I definitely encourage everyone to go back and listen. But specifically in the trauma bay, uh, Brian, what are some kind of considerations that we as pharmacists should keep in mind as we're trying to figure out maybe which... Uh, hyperosmolar therapy, we should give, or how much, et cetera. <laughs>
1: I, I certainly don't think I can add anything that Aaron Cook probably hasn't already, but <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> uh, I'll definitely give you my thoughts uh, uh, for sure. But, you know, so when a patient comes in, if we have potential elevated ICPs in, in those situations, obviously vitals are going to be very important, um, knowing that, uh, you know, we can cause and induce some hypotension potentially with some intravascular volume depletion with mannitol administration and access, um, making sure that we're uh, placing those footwear needles if we're going to do mannitol. If they've had any previous doses, especially if they're coming from an outside facility, like, uh, obviously it goes into the, the nerdy aspect of hyperosmolar therapy with reflection coefficients. Um, so that's something I start to consider and then any past medical history. So, uh, if we're dealing with patients with heart failure, renal failure, um, but I am a the same way that I look for reasons not to use sucks. I look for reasons not to use uh, hypertonic saline. But even then, I, I, I'll think about uh, equal molar dosing with uh, bicarb in, in those situations.
0: Oh yeah, why don't you drop that pearl on us there? What do you What do you mean by that?
1: So in terms of uh, dosing. Uh, Well, I think it's really good too. People can go and look at the the box of uh, sodium bicarb uh, uh, in terms of the uh, hypertonicity. But, you know, if you're in a bind in a situation where you don't potentially have 3%, you don't have time uh, for setting up mannitol, you can uh, administer uh, sodium bicarb in in that situation. And even just as a bolus, because it does provide... uh, uh, good equal molar dosing that's uh as hypertonic I believe as I'd have to double check on that, but I believe it's as hypertonic as twenty three point four equal molar dosing. Yeah so, it absolutely is um, it, yep. it, it, and in that situation you're you're able to get a quick, uh easy um, a dose in in those situations. And most people won't bat an eyelid in terms of administering bicarb in those situations. Um so it's just something to consider and keep in your back pocket.
0: I, I think it's so funny that you even bring up giving someone 23% instead of the 250 sodium chloride. You know, maybe they have a history of heart failure or something like that. Oh man, you, you it, it's unbelievable the looks that you may get, but you suggest pushing an amp of bicarb and it's just like, oh yeah, sure. So it's just very funny because they are, they have the same osmolarity in the amount of sodium. So just the response from pushing one versus the other always, always, um, yeah. Makes me laugh.
1: exactly and, and that's why when people start to argue about access about administering there's certain and I wouldn't say argue but there's there's obviously protocols in place in terms of safety and for those reasons um, but that's usually one of my go-to's to, to, to uh, discuss oh well you just gave bicarbon to that 22 gauge <laughs> so let's talk about that <laughs> yeah uh, or the or the d50 and the you know 60 year old that uh, you know has a, 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 a small any cubital. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's weird that we have certain uh, lines in the sand, but that's the great thing about lines in the sand. And even with a single breath, it goes away. So.
0: Um, okay. So kind of wrapping up here, cause I think you did an awesome job of kind of giving us a really, a good look into um, what kind of goes into the trauma bay. What are you thinking? Anticipation, talking about some of the things so what would you say are maybe a few high-level points or things you'd kind of like to reiterate um, and make sure that the audience kind of remembers?
1: I think that it practicing and, and ha- placing yourself in situations and, and coming up with scenarios ahead of time can uh, really lead to um, a more level-headed or even a uh, calmer demeanor in the, in the trauma bay. Uh, we've said it multiple times, but it's very true that when a patient is actively coming in and they're uh, hemorrhaging or they're actively dying, it's if you've already had uh, and practiced these scenarios in your head, um, you really can prevent a lot of, of, of panic by having that preparation. Um, understanding different clinical scenarios and not being tied uh, to one uh, therapy or another is really key as well, um, which comes along with those practicing uh, the The practice patients that you have in your head, in terms of uh, coming up with uh, with the best regimens, and then bouncing ideas off of everybody. We have talked about it multiple times just today that many institutions are going to have many different ways of doing things, and so uh, networking, listening, uh, listening to podcasts like this, and getting involved and seeing people who will comment on Twitter on this stuff is is a great way to to really engage and have those higher level discussions that. Uh, can ultimately lead to better
0: patient care. Super important points. I I, I think those are great highlights to reiterate. I, I think the other thing is just multidisciplinary, mm-hmm. right? It's a team and understanding that all we, we're all doing a role of trying to help this patient ultimately. So everything you can, it's kind of an all hands on deck scenario. Um, so just help in any way you can. Oh. Brian, that was great. Let's do a little. So, typically, I think a lot of a lot of the listeners know I like to ask some kind of small talk, kind of you know, fun questions at the end. And I I've created kind of a new a revamped list here. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna pull a couple mm-hmm. random ones here, and we'll we'll see how this goes. Okay. Sounds good. So, what is your favorite meal of the day? Breakfast. Breakfast. That was so quick. Like, breakfast can, as can, in just breakfast, or are you also can, including breakfast for yeah. dinner? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: anytime. So, so Brenner is uh, obviously breakfast with dinner is like a royalty. And I feel like a king every time my fiance had that. Especially come out. you come out after uh, a 10, 12 hour shift. Uh, you know, you've just been getting beat up all day. Uh, and seeing that. Seeing that text that I've got eggs eggs waiting for me is a is a royalty. So,
0: <laughs> all right. So so building on breakfast here, are you pancakes or waffles?
1: Uh, Kodiak cake, man. Pancakes, so good. So 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 good, man. Oh, and yeah, get the chocolate the, chip flavored. That's the yeah. protein
0: ones because I I have that for yeah. waffles. I'm a waffle guy till I die. So all right, we're on oh, separate man. we're on separate hills there. <laughs> um. All right, and then. Let's do. What is the guideline that you have been waiting on? That, like, if if someone came down and was like, Brian, you tell me which guideline you want updated right now, and tomorrow it will be updated. What would that be? Man, there's there's there's, there's like wrong answers to
1: this that you could like <laughs> lose friends. You could like lose friends over. I could give you boring one, and I could give you a like a. A controversial one. Let's do both.
0: Let's do both. I love that. What's the boring one? I think
1: the boring one that I would like is for the DKA guidelines to be updated to reflect. That's not boring at all. uh, It's kind of boring. Come (laughs) on.
0: Man, I love DKA. (laughs) Man, any students or residents that have been with me, I think they dread it. I love it. I think it's so. It's great. But you're right, man. We don't need a bunch of noise in the front.
1: Are you, well, that, are you a uh, early administration of uh, sub-Q insulin guy?
0: You know, I'm not, but when people try to fight for <sighs> it, I'm okay with that.
1: <laughs> See, that's what I, I, if you look at the European guidelines, they're, they're all about early sub-Q. So that's what we've reflected, what we started doing in our practice. And so shout out to Joel for being my partner in crime with that and getting that going. But I would love for those guidelines to be updated. Um, and, as my boring answer and then in terms of my controversial answer i would love for the stroke guidelines to update and get rid of uh you know obviously be a little less uh pro ID thrombolytics in the sense that hey this data is controversial can you at least admit that <laughs> as opposed to just like this is the greatest thing since sliced bread so
0: A there are neurology colleagues who literally your name just got wrote on a list for even verbalizing that. How dare you! It is IV TPA for everybody. If they're here at four hours and 28 minutes, dang it, we're spiking that TPA, Brian. (laughs) You know, I agree, I agree. There are people that I believe are slam dunk candidates, you know, exactly when they were like they're young, all those types of things, but you know. When I've, I've TPA'd a triple digit person before in their hundreds, things like that, or it, it is not for everybody. I agree with that. That's another discussion for another time though. You're, you're yeah. 100% right. <laughs> oh. I love I'm, Hey,
1: I'm, I'm, I'm very active in the neuro care society. I love neuro. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not,
0: this is a pro neuro podcast. If you go back and yeah, look. I'm not We're, an anti, I'm just a very, uh, we need to be stewards of it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Brian, I, I really appreciate your time. And if you're, if you're looking for Brian, um, you want to reach out to him on, on Twitter or something like that. His username is at Gilbert farm D. Um, so look for him there. So creative of me. (laughs) Hey, you got in there's, there's people now who have to do like, like Peter's farm D 32 or things like that. So at least you got in with no numbers. (laughs) Okay. Well, Brian, thanks again. Really appreciate you joining us and, and sharing um, a lot of your kind of knowledge and expertise in trauma.
1: Oh, thank you for having me, man. I got I got my friend of the pod uh, shirt on and ready to take on the business, man.
0: <laughs> I appreciate that. My we'll have to we'll have to work on a recurring guest one next.
1: Oh yeah, that's awesome. That'd be great. Thank All you, man. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Another uh, huge thank you to Brian for joining me. And as always, uh, definitely send me feedback, positive and negative, as well as any uh, guest or topic ideas. Uh, Twitter, at PharmacyToDose, that's T O dose, or via email, PharmacyToDose at gmail.com. On our website, you'll find um, show notes, kind of a new and improved show notes. We're trying to pare them down a little bit into like a one or two page um, handout now, rather than the long one that we had previously as well as references, um, so you can go back and look at some of the studies we talked about. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast.